ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Wednesday the 20th of December. I'm Stephanie Smale coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yugara people in Brisbane. Today, talk of another humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza as the death toll in the territory approaches 20,000. A fiery volcanic eruption in Iceland creates a dramatic four-kilometre-long fissure on the Earth's surface. And easy on that e-scooter. Doctors in Melbourne say hospitals are seeing too many injured riders. I think a lot of the use is opportunistic, so whereas you might not really um, take your car to uh, a function where you might anticipate you'll be drinking, you can walk out of a pub and find an e-scooter in front of you and have a few other options to get home and use one and uh, have an injury. The massive clean-up job has begun in far north Queensland, with locals trying to recover from the destructive force of the region's record flooding. 35 communities are still isolated and police say they have grave fears for an 85-year-old man who's been missing since Sunday north of Port Douglas. While disaster assistance payments will soon be available for flood-affected locals, many are still coming to terms with the scale of the damage and authorities are stressing they're working to get critical supplies into isolated communities as quickly as possible. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. Maria Vasicek is still coming to terms with the damage the fast-moving floodwaters inflicted on her home at Marillion near Innisfail. It's been um, completely uh, annihilated. <laughs> um, but And my vehicle, which was parked inside the garage, it's a write-off as well. Now the water's receded, all she's been left with is a big mess. Everything's been taken out and... Um, all the kitchen's all swollen up and there's there's nothing and it's been thick sludge. As many communities begin the mammoth clean-up, others like Woodgill Woodgill north of Cairns remain the focus of mass evacuations. Residents of the community are being flown to Cooktown where there have been frantic efforts to get critical infrastructure back in working condition. Cookshire Mayor Peter Scott says the local water treatment plant should be back up and running today and the next priority is getting roads fixed. The road to down to Woodgill is badly damaged and even the road to Cairns has got a number of um, pinch points on that too that need to be fixed up. People who are driving trucks and driving cars are doing so at their own risk at the moment. So it's. Um, I know that uh, Department of Transport and Main Roads are out there doing as much as they can, as quickly as they can. As emergency workers and volunteers grow weary and fatigued, reinforcements have been called in. Federal Minister for Emergency Management, Murray Watt, says the Defence Force has sent dozens more workers up from Townsville. To replenish uh, the, the human resources here, bring fresh legs, provide a bit of fatigue management uh, to people who've been howled at it for days. More than two dozen communities remain isolated by road, with many still without power or telecommunications. 
Brendan Moon, who's the head of the National Emergency Management Agency, says it'll take time to get a full handle on the extent of the damage. We've seen massive impacts to road networks, to communities, and at this point in time, damage assessment teams are only now being able to access many of those communities. So I think over the coming days, we will get more visibility of the impacts there. Kat Tannock is coordinating a team of volunteers to deal with the daunting job of clearing the mud. Lake Placid um, basically opened up yesterday uh, while the beaches were still under police escort. We turned up to people who just broke down. It was just horrible. Authorities are also worried about the health risks that are emerging during the clean-up. Richard Gare, the director of the Tropical Public Health Unit at the Cairns and Hinterland Hospital and Health Service, says the biggest worry is meliodosis, an organism that normally lives in the soil and comes to the surface during floods. People get meliodosis either by being immersed in flood water, uh, swallowing the water, or through direct contact with flood water and mud. If they've got cuts and abrasions, it can get in through the skin. In Townsville, four years ago, they had 22 cases following the floods, and sadly, four of those died. People involved in the cleanup are being urged to wear gloves and boots and to avoid contact with floodwaters or mud. Elizabeth Cramsey and Gavin Coote reporting. Homes have been destroyed at Caranda, north of Cairns 2, with about two metres of rain recorded there and the Barren River hitting record flood levels. Chris Lovey lives on the northern side of the river and he's still cut off. He's taken in two families who have lost their homes and he worked with others in the community to clear 35 kilometres of fallen trees from dirt roads so locals can access help and supplies. I spoke to him a short time ago. We have two families living with us at the moment that have lost everything. The younger couple, it's a two-storey house, it flooded to the um, guttering. They took everything upstairs, but the, the impact of the flooding was that bad that it completely covered their ceiling to their top ceiling, so they lost everything. Uh, the other couple that are staying with us, they're homeless as well because their house, it went two-thirds of the way to their ceiling. They lost pets. Uh, they've lost everything. We went down there. We had to get a boat. The destruction was, um, for example, they had a, a shed and they had an ATV, a four-wheeler in the shed, and the jerry cans, everything that you'd have in a normal shed was in a pile, and the ATV was sitting on top of it upside down. Did those families get out in plenty of time? No. One family got out. They were very nervous and they stayed here. The other family believed that the flood wouldn't impact them to the degree it did, so they went back home and we contacted them and said, this rain isn't stopping, I'm, we start to get nervous, do you want to come up? They made the decision to leave and they drove out down their driveway and the water was over the bonnet of the car, but they, they've got a four-wheel drive, so they got out and they basically came with a bag of clothing and that's, that's all they've got left. The items in the house have turned upside down and they're, the devastation, the, the sludge, the smell, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not a pleasant experience for anyone to go through that. Chris, who was in those cars with the chainsaws clearing that road? How did that yeah, come together? The Barren River was so high, the SES said they couldn't get there and to 
phone triple zero. So it wasn't an emergency, we felt, but we did need uh, assistance. The council said they can't look at the road because the conditions are too wet. And we thought people are going to run out of food, etc. And it's really important. So we took it upon ourselves and said, we've got to make this happen. So there was four car loads of men. I think we had six chainsaws. It was pretty tough to, to cut a tree down and get around it. You'd have to drive through the embankment or through a ditch. So we made it more accessible for, I was thinking of ladies that were a bit nervous that needed to get out, for example. Chris, what's next for you now? Obviously, you've got a huge support role for those families. What's next? What's next for um, you and them and, and your community? Our, our place is intact. So personally for us, we're fine. Um, my only problem, ironically, because we live on the river, we pump from the river and I'm wondering whether our pump is hasn't been washed away with the floods if it has I've got eight people here and ironically we'll have we'll run out of water <laughs> for the families to move on it, unfortunately they'll have to go through the slow process of going through their house and slowly taking this out that's rubbish take this out that's no good we could retrieve this and go through that painstaking process that's Chris Lovey from Karanda in far north Queensland. To the Middle East now and anger over the fighting in Gaza is rising among aid agencies as the health ministry there says the death toll in the territory is approaching 20,000. Israel has indicated it's ready for another pause in fighting to allow more hostages to be freed and a Hamas leader is travelling to Egypt tomorrow, further raising hopes of truce talks. Rachel Hayter reports and a warning, her story contains some distressing details. A newborn baby girl is carried away on a stretcher at the Kuwaiti hospital in Rafa in southern Gaza. Aisha Zogrub was born on the 2nd of December. She was killed yesterday in an Israeli airstrike on a home nearby, according to the Associated Press. At least 10 other people were killed in the same bombing, most of them children, including Aisha's big brother, two-year-old Ahmed. The Gaza Health Ministry says the siblings are among more than 19,600 Palestinian people killed in this war. Some of the other child survivors wearing T-shirts and nappies are being treated on hospital beds. This 11-year-old boy in Rafa, Karam Zayara, wants the fighting to stop. He shared a video message with The World Today. Stop this war, this crazy war as soon as possible. We are tired. We hear the sounds of violent bombing while another don't caring about what's happening in Gaza. We are tired. Aid agencies are warning about the collateral deaths, injuries and suffering of Gazan civilians, as the Israeli military says its strikes aim to defeat Hamas. The militant group killed 1,200 people in a terrorist attack on southern Israel on October 7 and took 240 hostages. More than 100 are still being held in Gaza. James Elder is a spokesperson for the UN Children's Agency. I'm furious that children who are recovering from amputations in hospitals are then killed in those hospitals. 
I'm furious that there are more children hiding as we speak somewhere who will no doubt be hit and have amputations in the coming days. Margaret Harris is a spokesperson from the World Health Organisation. One of my colleagues described people lying on the floor in severe pain, in agony, but they weren't asking for pain relief, they were asking for water. It's beyond belief that the world is allowing this to continue. A United Nations Security Council vote on a draft resolution on a ceasefire has now been delayed until tomorrow. Last week, the bigger General Assembly voted 153 to 10 to call for a humanitarian ceasefire, with 23 UN members abstaining. Speaking to ambassadors in Jerusalem, Israeli President Isaac Herzog has raised hopes of another temporary truce. Israel is ready for another humanitarian pause and additional humanitarian aid in order to enable the release of hostages. The White House has reiterated that Israel has a right to defend itself. US State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller told reporters the details of the text of the Security Council resolution matter. Has Israel asked the US to veto this? Uh, we have been in, in uh, discussions with them about it, as we are in discussions with uh, other countries in the region. We'll make our own determination about what the best course of action is, and it will depend very much on what the final text of the resolution states. The US vetoed the last draft resolution for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Hamas leader Ismail Haniya will travel to Cairo tomorrow. Meanwhile, there are reports Qatar, the CIA and Israel's intelligence agency Mossad have met in Poland to talk about another potential hostage deal. Rachel Hayter and Nicole Johnston with that report. Australia has so far not committed any military assets to a US-led global effort to protect ships being targeted by Yemeni rebels in the Red Sea. The Houthis say they won't stop attacking ships unless Israel stops its assault on Gaza. The attacks are scaring off some of the world's top shipping companies and oil giants that use the route, forcing them to reroute via southern Africa. Fatima Alumi has more. In the White House, officials are scrambling for a coordinated response aimed at protecting ships in the Red Sea. In recent weeks, Iran-backed Houthi rebels from Yemen have been targeting commercial vessels with drones and ballistic missiles in the crucial sea lane. Major companies, including BP and Evergreen, plan to divert their ships around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, resulting in extra time and expense. John Kirby is the U.S. National Security Council spokesperson. From the beginning, we said that this is an international challenge. It requires collective and international action. And we've been able to bring together now a number of partners, including the United Kingdom, Bahrain, Canada, France, Spain, and even more, to address this challenge together. The U.S. and the world's largest flag states for commercial vessels transiting the Red Sea have also issued a joint statement condemning the acts by the Houthis. This joint statement has 44 signatories, including NATO, the EU and G7, as well as Australia, Canada and New Zealand. The U.S. says it's setting up a task force to protect shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. About 40% of international trade passes through the waterway between Yemen and northeast Africa, which leads northwards to Israel's southern port facilities and the Suez Canal. The Houthis say their attacks are an act of revenge against Israel for its assault on Gaza. Lena Adele is a Middle East analyst from Curtin University. 
The Houthis are essentially a rebel group that rose to power when they took over Sana'a in 2014, following pushing out the transitional government, and this followed the Arab Spring period. She says their motives for targeting the ships are complex. We have to understand that Yemen is a really politically fragmented country, but the Palestinian cause is one that resonates with everyone within the country, but also resonates regionally. So it garners them that public and domestic support, which really feeds into building their brand of legitimacy. We can make the argument that obviously it benefits them politically, but I think that it's actually intrinsic that the Palestinian cause is one that's important to the Yemeni people in general. And she adds, what this means for Israel is an impact on supplies for their assault on Gaza. The people that will pay the heaviest price will not be the Houthis. It will be Israel and its allies. I think that the Houthis understand that they have the upper hand and that it will be extremely difficult to prevent further escalation. So how is this impacting the global economy if ships aren't able to get through the Red Sea? Don Meyer is an associate professor of supply chain logistics at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. We can do it. The, the vessels can certainly make that additional sailing and more time. But again, it just takes longer. And it's nothing that any shipping line would want to do because it adds additional costs, especially with the fuel. And you have your crew on board now for an extra two weeks. So that creates more of a problem. At some point, you and I as consumers, we're going to be paying for this. And given the Red Sea is becoming more and more dangerous for ships bound for Israel, many shipping companies don't want to be in the vicinity of the conflict. Nobody wants to sail through any type of a war zone, and typically the shipping lines will actually add on a additional rate for all of the mariners on board the vessels to sail into a war zone. Associate Professor Don Meyer from the University of Tennessee ending that report from Fatima Alumi. Tourists and scientists have flocked to see a fiery eruption of Iceland's Sundnugush volcano. The volcano in Iceland's northeast has erupted spectacularly after weeks of seismic activity. It's not causing major disruptions to air travel or infrastructure so far, but authorities say it could keep erupting for weeks, if not months. Flint Duxfield has the latest. After several weeks of increasing tremors, the Sundnuga volcano has unleashed its fury and its beauty onto Iceland's Reykjanes Peninsula. Volcanic magma spewed up to 100 metres in the air as a four-kilometre fissure spread across the land. Local Thor Stein witnessed the eruption from the nearby town of Keflavik. It was something kind of out of this world. The flames and what was coming out, it was, it was enormous. It was uh, absolutely amazing, but so scary. With seismic activity beginning weeks ago, Director of Volcanic Monitoring at the Canary Islands Volcanological Institute, Luca de Aurea, says scientists have been surprised by how slow the eruption has been. The amount of lava which is being emitted is amazing. There have been estimates of more than 100 cubic metres per second. It is impossible right now to establish how long it is going to be the eruption, but realistically it's going to last no more than a few months. The eruption started a few kilometres from Grindavik, a small fishing town located 40 kilometres southwest of Iceland's capital, Reykjavik. All 4,000 residents of the town were evacuated in November after the area was hit by a seismic swarm of more than 1,000 small earthquakes in the space of just 24 hours. Other nearby towns have also since been evacuated, but that hasn't stopped tourists like Jasper, who's visiting from the Netherlands, taking a look. For now it's amazing because uh, we don't have this kind of things in, uh, in Holland, so it's a once-in-a-lifetime for us. 
In 2010, another Icelandic volcano, Eyjafjallajökull, caused transport chaos around the world when its gaseous plumes disrupted multiple flight paths. While it's possible some flights may be affected, volcanologist from the University of Lancaster, Dr. Dave McGarvey, says this eruption is unlikely to have such a significant impact. You'd be hard put to find two very different contrasting eruptions from this eruption to Eyjafjallajökull. What came out in 2010 was a type of magma that fragments very easily into fine ash and the combination of weather, wind and um, dry conditions met this ash was in the sky for a very long time. The eruption that's happening at the moment, this is actually a larger eruption in terms of the length of the crack out of which the magma is pouring and also it started very energetically. The Icelandic government has said the eruption does not present a threat to life. But Prime Minister Katrin Jakobsdottir says it's unlikely volcano evacuees will be able to return home anytime soon. Obviously, Grindavik residents were anxious to return to their homes. That won't happen in the near future. So we'll keep putting great effort into fixing their housing problem. For locals like Hans Vera from Grindavik, that means they could be playing the waiting game for some time yet. They probably think there's a chance that it opens up somewhere else and then it's going to be closer to Grindavik. So we are back in uh, the waiting game. Icelander Hans Vera ending that story from Flint Duxfield. Well, e-scooters can be a handy way to get around, but there's new evidence the health costs from using them are hefty. A new study from a major Melbourne hospital has found e-scooter injuries are costing Victorian taxpayers millions of dollars a year. Oliver Gordon has been taking a look. Melbourne's South Bank is a hotspot for e-scooters, but not everyone feels the same way about them. I think they can be a dangerous thing when they're with pedestrians and elderly people and they just seem to scoot along. And they seem to get dropped everywhere, you know. You see them laying around all over the place. Sometimes you get some nanases that are just like... Zoo. People also have their own ones. I think yeah, it's a pretty good way to get around. Yeah. Yeah. The Victorian government began a trial of e-scooters in early 2022. Surgeon Anand Ramakrishnan has been tracking the presentations at Royal Melbourne Hospital since and has released the figures for last calendar year. We're looking at about five cases a week, so over 250 cases a year, just in the trial period that we looked at. The group studied what ailments fallen riders suffered. The majority of these injuries are soft tissue injuries, so scrapes, bumps, grazes, um, but a significant proportion of them still need to go to come into hospital and be admitted, need operations. And which groups, at what times, were presenting? The demographics of our study population suggest that the younger people, uh, it tends to be later in the week, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. A further dive into the data reveals men make up 69% of those injured by an e-scooter, with the average age of those injured being 29. I think a lot of the use is opportunistic, so whereas you might not really um, take your car to a function where you might anticipate you'll be drinking, you can walk out of a pub and find an e-scooter in front of you and have a few other options to get home and use one and uh, have an injury. It's been estimated the cost to the Royal Melbourne Hospital of treating the 256 patients with e-scooter injuries last year was almost $2 million. With that in mind, Dr Anand Ramakrishnan wants significantly better data collection and quickly. So we don't know what proportion of these trips uh, resulting in an injury. Certainly uh, studies overseas, uh, one of them estimated 
the rate of injuries to be about 60 per 100,000 rides. But we don't know what that is in Australia. Sarah Whitelaw from the Australian Medical Association, who praised the study, says any measure to reduce the burden on Victoria's health system would be welcomed. We've got such a huge backlog uh, of elective surgery cases at the moment. The last thing we want to be doing is using their theatre time to deal with uh, emergency injuries that we could have avoided. She's also suggested e-scooter companies could pay some of the costs associated with injuries on their vehicles. Earlier this year, Paris ended its five-year e-scooter rental scheme after a city-wide mini-referendum on which 89% of residents voted against the scooters, in part due to safety concerns. Victorian Health Minister Marianne Thomas has been questioned about e-scooter safety this morning. While she's not convinced they're more dangerous than bikes, she has urged caution. What I am informed of is that in terms of e-scooter accidents is that they are on a parallel with regular bikes, but we should not be complacent. I don't want to see anyone coming to harm on a bicycle, on an e-scooter, in a car. A decision on whether the controversial vehicles will be made permanent in Victoria is expected next year. Oliver Gordon and Kimberly Price reporting. And that's all from the World Today team. I'm Stephanie Smale. Thanks for your company. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.